0: Hello, welcome along. It's a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan. Thank you for finding us, for streaming, for following, for listening in, and journeying around the universe as we search out some of the supreme secrets that are lurking through science. Uh, This is the greatest podcast in the history of the universe. Uh, I've got the medal and the certificate A huge trophy to show it as well We've just won our second award in a row So thank you very much for for all the congratulations that you've been sending to me Uh, This week we'll talk about a huge snapping monster that used to be under the sea Also about a brand new planet that we found And I've got your questions this week They're on hot things, cold things and big things We'll get to those after we catch up with our favourite genius on the show. This is Professor halux Professor halux Builds a Body is produced by Fun Kids with support from the Welcome Trust.
1: Hello again, medical buffs. I'm Nurse Nanobot and it's time to join Professor halux again. As he continues his quest to build a body I'm here in his lab and it's like a whirlwind in a washing machine here (coughs) There are piles of dusty old books, enough to make even a robot sneeze (coughs) 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 Boiling vats of smelly concoctions and buckets full of petri dishes and beakers What a mess! Brainbox Professor Halux is building a body and he's beginning to take shape So what's the plan today, Prof? Thanks,
2: Nurse Nanabot. Hello all! Today I'm adding a nice nose to my body Noses aren't just there to balance your sunglasses on They are sniffing specialists Brilliant for breathing and help us taste things too Give them the lowdown, Nurse!
1: First, a bit of Nose geography Your nose has two holes called nostrils These holes go all the way into your head and down into your lungs The nostrils are separated by a bendy wall called a septum which is made of cartilage The same material that forms the top parts of your ears If you pinch and wiggle your nose you can feel the bendy cartilage moving There's a space behind your nose called the nasal cavity and air pockets called sinuses which are lodged in the bony bits around the edge The nasal cavity is separated from your mouth by your palate. That's the roof of your mouth. The internal parts of the nose are coated with fine hairs and mucus, a gloopy substance that has many amazing properties. The hairs and mucus act like a sticky doormat to catch dirt, dust and even germs.
2: The mucus is also what you might call snot and because that snot catches all the germs, don't pick your nose and eat it. I'm drilling two lovely nostrils for my body now and tipping in some lovely gloopy mucus.
1: And now the nose is ready for action. The nose helps us breathe. As air comes in the nostrils, it's warmed up and cleaned as it passes over the mucus membranes and hairs.
2: I say, I say, I say! My dog's got no nose! How does he smell, then? Dreadful! (coughs) Noses have a lot in common with taste buds in your eyes. They scoop up information about what is around you and send it to the brain for decoding. The nose's specialist subject is smells, of course. Tell them about
1: smells, nurse! The scientific word for your sense of smell is olfaction. And tissue-coating the space behind your nostrils is the olfactory epithelium. It is covered with over 10 million receptors that pick up outer molecules and transmit their information to the olfactory bulb in your brain. Your brain can discern about 10,000 smells, both yucky and yummy, like stinky cheese or a delicious freshly baked tray of biscuits.
2: Those smells aren't just for telling what's for tea. Being able to tell what something is, often when you can't see, helps keep them safe. If something was burning, your nose would know before your eyes could see the smoke. And if you were about to eat a burger that was bad, you'd very likely smell the ick before taking a mouthful and getting a horrible taste in your mouth. Or if you were paying attention, you would.
1: Did you know you'd struggle to taste things at all without your nose? Those olfactory receptors work with the taste buds to piece together what something is like Just like parts of a puzzle (laughs) (laughs) Lots of things can irritate the nose For example when a cold has made your mucous membrane sore Or if you're particularly sensitive or allergic to certain substances like pollen or cat hair Sneezing is the nose's way of getting rid of the irritation in your nose The tickle Triggers a response in part of the brain called the sneeze centre And a whole load of muscles from your stomach to your chest work together to kick the tickle out Did you know that you always close your eyes when you sneeze? If you didn't close your eyes, they'd pop out Don't be ridiculous, Professor Sneezing is certainly powerful coming out of your nose at speeds of 100 miles per hour But not enough to hurt your eyes
2: Horrible old anatomy fact.
1: The nasal cavity is quite close to the brain and this is sometimes quite handy. The ancient Egyptians used to embalm their dead and this required them to remove soft and squishy tissue from the body, like the brain. But how did they get the brain out without cutting the body open? Simple. They'd shove a giant hook up each nostril pushing it through the nasal cavity and pull the brain out bit by bit through the nostrils. The brain gunk would be put into pots of embalming fluid and the empty head washed out.
2: Disgusting Detail
1: Colds and sneezes are bad enough, but sometimes you can get a terrific buildup of mucus in your sinuses, those air pockets in your head above the nasal cavity, and that can make you feel really grotty. What happens is the cold virus can damage the little hairs that normally keep the mucus moving, and so it clogs up like a traffic jam. The mucus builds up and builds up until it is like a big, stagnant puddle with lots of bacteria, viruses and even fungi swimming in it.
2: When this happens, you get a sore face and a headache and your voice starts sounding very funny indeed. I'm making sure my body has nice, clear sinuses to start with so he doesn't sound silly. Right. My body is looking much more handsome now he has a neat nose nailed on his noggin. It's time to see if it works, so let's let the lightning loose. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific! Success! He's a sniffing, sneezing sensation. That's my work done for today. Next time we'll be adding nails and hair to help my body look a bit more human. Hope you can join me in Nurse NanaBot then.
1: about the professor and his body at the fun kids website funkidslive.com
2: Professor Halleck's built a body is produced by Fun Kids with support from the
0: Welcome Trust first question this week you can send your questions in by the way leave them as a review for the podcast find the fun Kids science weekly on apple podcasts Uh, leave your question uh, leave your name as well so i can say hello and five stars that will help me see it Uh, here's one from thomas why is ice cold and fire hot Uh, there's a lot to this thomas I i could spend a year's worth of podcasts that each lasted a week and i could still be explaining this I've tried to do it as best I can. Fire is hot because it's a chemical reaction. Now, a chemical reaction means that something has changed. It's gone from one state to another. You can see that, can't you? When you look at fire, when you burn wood, afterwards it becomes charcoal, it becomes ash. Now, in fire, to make that reaction, you need the temperature to rise. It needs to get hot. Now, when that flame starts, when it gets too hot, that's when the reaction starts to happen and energy gets released from that reaction. Now, heat is a type of energy uh, and that's what makes it get really, really hot. It's hard to get your head around. But think of when you make heat because you eat food, then that gives you energy. You use that energy, you burn it off when you run around, when you play football, something like that, and you get hot and sweaty, don't you? It's because the energy changes from one type of energy, the type you've eaten, to the heat energy. It's the same with fire, really. It's this chemical reaction. It eats and burns the wood to get the energy, and then it gets hot because that changes to heat energy, and it goes round and round and round. Now, that's with heat. Ice is cold because the stuff that makes it, the molecules that build ice, they move very slowly molecules moving all the time the molecules in your body that make you right now that are in your brain your arms your legs your skin they're all over the place they're always moving in ice though they're moving very very slowly so they don't make a lot of heat and also heat passes from something warm to something cold it's always trying to keep in balance so when you touch a piece of ice The cold, you'll feel the cold because the heat that's in you will leave and transfer to the ice, which means your temperature goes down. Uh, So there's a lot to that, Thomas. I hope I've I've done a good job of it. But it could have taken a lot, 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 lot longer. Thank you for the question. Here's one from Hollow Cat who wants to know what's the biggest living thing in the world and has the biggest heart. Uh, It's the blue whale. They can grow to 100 foot long which is about the size of three buses. Their tongue weighs as much as an elephant does. They are the loudest animals on the planet. If you could hear them underwater, the the noise would shatter your bones through the vibration. They normally live around 90 years. They have the biggest heart. It weighs about 180 kilograms, which is about the size of a car. And that huge heart, it's so good at pumping around blood through their body. It only beats twice a minute. There you go, Holocat. Thank you for the question. If there's something you'd like answered on the show next week, leave it as a review for us over on Apple Podcasts. It's the Fun Science Weekly. Joining us this week, uh, I I can say a bona fide friend of the show, Christopher Lloyd, been on many times before to talk about the amazing books that he's uh, released. And he's up in Scotland right now at the very important COP26. He's there to talk about his brand new book and to tell us what's going on. Chris, Christopher Lloyd, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Dan. It's great to be back. Now, COP26, we're hearing a lot about it at the moment, and I know I've been speaking a lot about it on the radio, but uh, we might not know exactly what it is and what we're trying to sort out. Can you just tell us what's going on up there? Oh, gosh, well, it's quite difficult, Dan,
3: to be honest. I'm not sure anybody really knows exactly what it is or exactly what's being sorted out. I mean, there are so many countries involved, so many delegations, so many conversations so many um, kind of uh, different themes and threats, because as you know, all your listeners will know, uh, the whole challenge of trying to address climate change and to try to limit the damage we're doing to the environment through uh, increasing global temperatures is just so complicated. So but I mean, the great thing is that the majority of countries uh, are there, they're engaging with the subject, nobody is kind of saying, oh, we're not sure there's really a problem here. Uh, We seem to have got really through the whole denial phase. I think there is some real kind of momentum building around the fact that that there's a real consensus that we've got to get a hold of this and do something, Um, and I feel very passionately about that because we've got to do it for young people. I mean, they've got the most to gain and the most to lose uh, if we don't get something done. So I think there's a tremendous um, wave of moral kind of um, pressure and then it's just trying to convert that into something that's tangible that actually is going to make the difference. And I guess that's the detail we're not going to know about it, COP. It's going to have to be what happens afterwards, really, and that will be the, the real test.
0: How much of the, of an idea is there about what those decisions might be? I mean, what, what really could whole countries do to stop it? Is it a case of making sure... They decide everyone's got to turn their lights off at seven in the evening. Everyone's got to stop eating meat. What like, what big decisions can these people make, do you think? For us, uh, it
3: is difficult. But, you know, if, if we all do depend on the electricity grid, you know, we take a lot of our energy, of course, from um, uh, through electricity. If we the idea is if we get everybody onto electricity, electric cars, you know, electric heaters in homes, everything's electric. Um, then provided we can make sure all the power that's being generated is being done from renewable sources, then we're making a huge step forward. Uh, we're getting people off gas boilers, getting people off oil, um, you know, uh, when it comes to, you know, transport, or when, and, and making sure all the el- trains are electrified. And, you know, the government can really do that, and it's got to get a hold of how it helps people make that transition over from carbon and fossil fuels to electricity. And then we've got to be able to deal with the fact that renewable energy, you know, the wind doesn't blow all the time. The sun isn't always out. We've got to be able to store energy so that when there's surplus um, energy being produced, we can use that energy when there isn't any wind blowing and the sun isn't out. So that means we need battery farms. We need, you know, there are some great uh, ideas being discussed at COP of how you can pump water up um, and then use water as a storage device so that when, you know, the wind isn't blowing, you release it and you create your hydroelectric power. And we just use gravity which, you know, is, but this is, these ideas have been around for, for, for thousands of years. It's, it's really uh, amazing to see them come back into vogue and sort of uh, be modernized and thinking that the past is, is, is the way to the future. And, and for our own individual lives, I think that really is the, the most important thing is that, you know, our ancestors lived in a world without electricity. They lived in a world, you know, where they had to uh, buy local things, make local things and have, Um, local economies that could sustain themselves. And and that that, that sort of wisdom of the past is very much, I think, a key to the future. So it's not that there aren't precedents, and it's not that there isn't hope. It's just that we all need to really start to think differently and talk about it all to each other so that we can help each other be more informed and be more creative in, in what we do next.
0: And you've you're up there. You've released a brand new book while you're there to show what we can do. Uh, and it's got, got a very good title for that. It's called It's Up To Us. Uh, just Chris, just tell us uh, where you started with this book. I know that uh, Prince Charles has been a little bit of an inspiration for you. Tell us more.
3: Yes. I mean, Prince Charles, I mean, has been a kind of crusader for trying to put nature at the heart of the way we live our lives for nearly 50 years. Amazingly, he's always been passionate about the environment, about um, plants, about farming um, and 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 about landscapes and about the beauty of nature. I think it's just something he was he was born with, really, with that instinct. And it's been something that's been part of his life ever since. And for a long time, he's never really, you know, been able to convey his message in a way that's really, you know, grabbed people's attention uh, more than sort of, you know, sometimes comic headlines, you know, and all the rest of it. But, but now uh, now that everybody realizes that this is absolutely fundamental to our future, uh, his ideas and his um, continuity, the things he's been saying for years, have come center stage. And he's look, he looks like a real kind of prophet in a way, saying he's been saying this for years and years. And now suddenly, of course, everybody's listening. Uh, well, thank goodness for that. Um, But so he's a wonderful kind of um, uh, supporter for this idea of having a new pledge with the planet, Uh, not a Magna Carta like we had 800 years ago to try and uh, work out the rule of law and how we can live in a civilized way. This time it's a terra carta, which he announced at the beginning of this year, where we have a new set of promises or pledges that we make to put nature at the heart of our thinking. And uh, when he announced this, it was really aimed at businesses um, to say, look, you've got to reform the ways you're leading your businesses and put nature first, not just shareholders or profits, but it's got to be the planet, terra carta. And when I heard about this, I was having done a book on the Magna Carta myself for the 800th anniversary for children uh, in 2015. I thought, what a great idea to see if we could do a children's book to explain this in simple ways um, using um, artwork and simple text so that young people, as young as five, six, seven, can understand the issues, and then encourage the adults in their lives to talk about it and be different. Um, and I think there's a really powerful way of having a, a long-term impact through the narrative of children. It's a very special time when you have children with their parents and uh, and the adults in their lives reading stories together. That is a way and a way of making more change, I think, than 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 just aiming the language and and the strategy straight straight at business leaders. So. So we put uh, put put a proposal together, uh, working with the Princess Foundation up here in uh, Scotland, in Ayrshire, who are amazing. And um, we didn't have very long to do the book. Uh, you, you probably know, Dan, that book publishing you know, takes time uh, to commission artists and all the rest of it. We had about three months uh, to do this to get it ready for COP26. And so rather than having one illustrator, which was our instinct, we thought, well, well the only way we can do this is to have more than one. And we ended up with 33, which is pretty- absolutely amazing. It's been such an exciting um, journey. So we commissioned 33 illustrators from all over the world, from places like Iran and Korea and, and Siberia and Kenya and Aboriginal Australia and Vietnam. And the richness of the story as you experience the different works of art uh, painted from these people from different cultures is it just uh, its unlike anything we've produced before. And I'm not sure It's really been done much before like that. But but given that the story is about it's up to all of us, wherever we're from, to do things differently, it really kind of works, I think, in terms of trying to explain how we, you know, um, explain the problem of climate change and now how we look at the pledges of things that we can do differently in the future to try and make a difference.
0: And there are some pledges. That's... what takes us on the story that's the, the, the point of the book just, just just run us through some of those pledges please yes
3: of course so um, it, what, what the pledges are in the last part of the book um, and um, it opens with a beautiful illustration of a, a boy flying a kite uh, walking his dog and in the distance you can see a wind farm in the sea and you can see solar panels uh, on the house uh, where he lives uh, and he's in nature and enjoying himself so he is not you know on a motorbike, uh, or he's not, um, you know, playing video games. He is enjoying the feeling of the wind on his face. The kite, the, the kite is flying with the wind in its sail. The dog is is running outside, and children are in touch with nature. And in, and in the forward to the book, Prince Charles says, you know, the children have a unique curiosity and 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 that they are uh, instinctively in touch with nature, which is something, of course, we can lose when we become adults. Um, and you can see this in this picture, and of course. Um, the pledge is about making sure we use renewable energy, that we don't uh, use fossil fuels and, and, and create carbon emissions. And, of course, wind farms and, and solar panels are things you know that are happening everywhere, thank goodness, but need to be even more and more kind of all pervasive. Um, and the other thing is it says in this pledge that we will capture carbon from the air and put it back in the ground. And, of course, this is something that nature does 24 by 7. You know trees suck up carbon dioxide eventually over millions of years it gets crushed into coal uh, and I've been doing these school talks this week and showing the kids lumps of coal. many of them have no idea that they are the fossilized remains of, of trees from millions of years ago and how the carbon from the air has been trapped and buried safely underground by nature and the idea of us digging it out and burning it and putting that carbon dioxide back again you know you can see that we're subverting nature's processes so of course, with that pledge, the key is to make sure that the easiest way of, of capturing carbon and putting in, putting in the ground is to plant trees. so this is another great campaign that children can encourage adults to do is to make space, plant trees you know as, as much as possible, surround ourselves with with nature 's solutions to these uh, these problems, uh, which of course, over millions of years, nature has come up with all kinds of incredible solutions for regulating the planet 's temperature. And planting trees is, is probably the most powerful. Uh,
0: amazing. Well, listen, the new book, it's up to us. It's out right now. If, you're, if you want to be inspired to save the world, give it a go for, from your home. Take these pledges. It's up to us. Christopher Lloyd is out now. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Now, this week's Dangerous Dan comes from a true story that I found online the other day. Uh, the headline, it grabbed me and it shook me all over. As soon as I saw it, I thought it'll do it to you too. Have a listen to this. The fearsome dog-sized scorpion that ruled Chinese seafloors 400 million years ago. That's our dangerous stand today. It was a scorpion, really existed. It was the size of a dog, 16 times bigger than a scorpion today, and it dominated the ocean. It lived about 430 million years ago. It was the top predator, the apex predator of the sea. It had giant arms with thick pincers that would rake in fish and mollusks. Uh, That's not all their tails. had jagged, spiny tips, a bit like you'd find on a very sharp kitchen knife. And these would make easy work of something a little bit bigger than a small fish. Now, experts know about this because of some of the fossils found about 80 years ago, they've been studying them all this time. They think that this sea scorpion was around before sharks or the barracudas that are the beasts of the ocean now. They don't know too much about it, apart from the fact that this sea scorpion was massive. It was the size of a dog and it dominated everything under the sea. It's time to catch up with our favourite gadget genius right now. The Guru, this is Techno Mum.
4: Techno Mum, engineering explorers. I've grown out of all my burgundy school jumpers, so I had to borrow one of my dad's jumpers. Trouble is, it was light red. You would almost say pink. It's not a colour I'm mad on. I wish I could magically change the colour of my clothes. That'd be pretty fun, actually. If it was hot, you could make it into a cool summery pattern. Smart fabrics really do exist, you know. It's something material engineers know all about. Material engineers? That's right. First, you've got to understand what materials are. Aren't they like the fabric our clothes are made of? Yes and no. Everything around us is made of some kind of material, and it doesn't just mean the fabric in our clothing. It's the matter from which things are made. The fleecy cotton in your hoodie might be one type of material. It's a great choice for warm clothing because it's flexible and soft and easy to wash. Take another example, the alloy wheels on a car are made of another type of material. Alloy metals are very light but strong. High-performance cars need their parts to be both, so this material is just the job. And something else you'll be familiar with. Your mobile phone is made of a number of different materials. The case might be polymer plastic, and the screen will be made of a really tough, transparent material, either a treated glass or a type of plastic which is tough enough to withstand a few bumps. Nothing worse than a cracked screen. Material engineers are expert at understanding the differences between all these different types of things. This helps them to be expert at choosing the right one for the job. Some material engineers work to create brand-new ones too like smart fabrics some smart fabrics help to keep us extra warm or cool sports manufacturers have found ways to weave aluminium and titanium into sports clothing which makes the fabric much cooler to the touch great for hot weather or when you're working up a sweat check out this video Joanna Bozowska is a scientist from Canada who's created clothing made from an electronic fabric that stores energy made by the body. She's made a dress which can change shape and colour, and a shirt that can charge a mobile phone. Now that would come in handy. To be a material engineer, you have to learn all about the different types of material out there and their properties. Perhaps your job will be to give a toy company advice on a safe, light plastic for a remote control plane. Or maybe a company who makes tents wants to invent a super waterproof new ground sheet. This might mean carrying out experiments in a laboratory to create a new type of plastic. As with many types of engineering, computers are used to check test results and help with the design. Anything with computers sounds cool to me. It's just one of loads of cool jobs in engineering. Almost as cool as Dad's jumper. Um, yeah, I think he can have it back now.
2: Engineering Explorers created with support from the Institution of Engineering and Technology to celebrate the Year of Engineering. Find out more at live.com slash
0: Now for this week's Science in the News. Astronomers have found hints of what could be the first planet ever discovered outside of our galaxy. Uh, 5,000 exoplanets have been found so far, but they've all been in our Milky Way. This one is way far back, 28 million years away from the Milky Way. It was discovered by the Chandra X-ray Telescope, which is in the Messier 51 galaxy, It was spotted using a technique where something gets in the way of a star that we already know about, so the light drops out for a split second. And experts think that it was this new planet that blocked it, and that's how they found it. Also, South Korea has launched its first homegrown rocket. The Nuri rocket took off 500 miles away from the capital, Seoul. It cost over a billion pounds, weighs 200 tons, it had six engines, and it's a first for the country. And as we've heard about so far today, the COP26 meeting is still happening up in Scotland. Leaders from around the world are getting together to talk about climate change, how they can cut carbon, lower emissions, turn down the temperature and hopefully save the world and that is it for this week's fun kids science weekly thank you for finding us and listening in uh, if you'd like your question answered next week on the show leave it as a review for me on apple podcasts you can find some brilliant science stuff that we do there as well there's loads more podcasts on the free fun kids app and at funkidslive.com. and fun kids we are a children's radio station from the uk listen to us all around the country on your dab digital radio on that free fun kids app and at FunKidsLive.com.